The government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, call 1-833-784-4397. A message from the Government of Canada. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. No way out. A Canadian family went to Wuhan, China for the Lunar New Year. Now the roads out are barricaded and they fear that without help from Ottawa, they won't be able to get home. Outbreak of suspicion. Some Chinese Canadians are speaking out about racism they say is spreading with the coronavirus. It's a stigma our guest says is the legacy of SARS. Swarm surge. Locusts are taking over huge swaths of land in the Horn of Africa. There are hundreds of millions of insects and now real fears they could devour food needed by millions of people. Last call. Joyce Pottinger is shutting down the only taxi company in Smithers, B.C. But she says her work goes far beyond giving lifts and she can't find drivers to deal with the emotional heavy lifting. Looking for answers. Last week, a young woman was killed in a Quebec hotel room. The man charged with her murder was out on parole after killing his wife. Now many people are asking why he was released at all. And profile of a thief. After dozens of cell phones are stolen at a Sum 41 concert in Antwerp, police in Amsterdam bust a pickpocket, a man with 30 phones crammed into his spandex bike shorts. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that guesses he did not look good in that number. It's supposed to be a time of celebration. But this Lunar New Year, people in Wuhan, China, are stuck at home under lockdown as the coronavirus continues to spread. And they may not be able to gather, but they're finding a way to come together anyway. On Monday night, people in the city took to the windows and balconies of their apartments to sing and shout messages of encouragement. Here's what that sounded like for the record. But while some in Hubei province are stuck at home, others want to go home. Megan Millward and Leah Zhang arrived in Wuhan on January 20th with their two young children. A few days later, they headed to the countryside. They were only supposed to stay a few days, but now they're stranded, as Chinese officials block the roads in hope of containing the virus. Today, Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne said the government will assess the needs of Canadians in Hubei province and offer them consular services on a case-by-case basis, looking at all options, including repatriation. But first, it will have to reach them which Ms. Millward and Mr. Zhang say hasn't happened yet. We reached the couple earlier today in Hubei province. Megan and Leah, how are you doing? We're hanging in there. How are your kids doing, Leah? They're doing well. They don't really aware what's going on here. And uh, Megan, any symptoms, anything that worries you about the health of your family at this point? Absolutely none. So we're, we're grateful for that. 
you were in Wuhan, and now you're it's still in the province, but you're outside of the city. What are the restrictions on your ability to get yourselves out at this point? So the all the ramps of the major road are blocked, and uh, only the people with a special permit can go, and uh, we can get the permit. So basically, we want to get out of the Hubei province so we can drive to Shanghai, and then we can our tickets this weekend back to Montreal. So basically, it's uh, road closures. There are barricades. So the space we have to move in is getting progressively smaller. Of course, there is a reason for that, right? I mean, they're doing it in order to stop the, the spread of the coronavirus. So what would you have to do in order to get a permit, Megan? We don't know if it is possible to get one. The The ones that are mentioned, vans transporting medical supplies or perhaps uh, local government officials would have. We don't know if it's possible for... Foreign, foreigners. foreigners or citizens to get such permits. You went to China to see family and to celebrate the Lunar New Year, is that right? Yes. Right. When did you start to worry that this trip was not going as planned? When we started seeing many people wearing masks and when we started hearing news about the situation not being as under control as people had previously been led to believe it was. How concerned are you that you're not going to be able to get out? Extremely concerned. I think uh, there's low chance we can get out without uh, the Canadian government's help right now. Short of walking, I don't see how we could get back to Shanghai. What contact have you had? What connections have you had with the Canadian government or its consular officials? We called the embassy in Beijing and the consulate in Shanghai. The consulate in Shanghai is closed for the holidays. The embassy in Beijing, the first time I called, I was put on hold and then eventually it hung up on me. And we've called the Emergency Watch and Response Center, which is in Ottawa, uh, a number of times. And the advice that we are given is just to keep abreast of the news and follow the instructions of local officials. We're talking to you, well, early uh, day here in Canada. It's late at night for you in China, so things may develop overnight. But at this point, what we're hearing from Canada is that the Foreign Minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, is saying there is, at this point, no plan to evacuate. They are doing things on a case-by-case basis. Is that what you're hearing? We've heard that there's no plan to evacuate. Uh, I hadn't heard about the case-by-case basis. We're not asking for, you know, an airlift or a chartered plane. While we would be very happy to take a seat if a plane is planned, all we need is just access to the highway. We have a car. We can drive ourselves to Shanghai. We, we are asymptomatic. We are absolutely willing to enter quarantine as soon as we arrive in Canada and undergo any tests. We just need to be able to get out of the province. Do you know if your flight is still taking off on the weekend? It it should be. You just have to get there. Exactly. And as far as you know, the only way you could do that is with the help of the Canadian government. Yes. 
At this point in the day, there are a number of countries uh, that are arranging the evacuation of their nationals. France is uh, has a very robust program. So does Japan. Spain is working on it. The U.S. State Department is evacuating its government personnel, um, plans to expand that. Britain is talking about it. Russia has closed its borders. So Canada's response, how do you, do you look at how that compares with what other countries are doing? I don't feel very good about uh, their answer about this because the situation here is quite uh, worse. Uh, And I got a friend who worked for the hospital and they just told me and patients with there for days, they won't be able to see them because it's just full, full, full. And uh, the new hospital is still with for a lot of five, six days to be finished. And uh, if, let's say, we were unlucky, we get infected. Yeah. We'll be probably be turned away and uh, just yeah. From from what we've read and heard on WeChat, even with those additional hospitals, they still might not have capacity to handle all of the cases that are coming. Yeah, and we don't know how worse it could can get right how much now. Worse. Yeah. yeah. What's what's your greatest concern at this point? Many concerns. What's the greatest one? <sighs> So get get infected. Yeah, and not having access to appropriate medical care. Canada has said that it's fully prepared to meet and deal with an outbreak. While right now we don't think we are infected, I know that there's a a 14-day period where you can be asymptomatic but be a carrier, but... If we're going to be quarantined, we would really prefer it to be on Canadian soil with sufficient medical staff and support. How old are your kids? Uh, One is six and one is going to be two next week. Megan and Leah, I I hope you get home and uh, for your kids and uh, for your health. And we will continue to cover the seat, what we can learn ourselves. Thank you for speaking with us tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Megan Millward, Leah Zhang, and their two kids are stranded in China and can't travel home because of the coronavirus outbreak. We reached them earlier today in the countryside in Hubei province. Since then, Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne has said that 126 of the 250 Canadians have now requested consular assistance. He promised to help but won't commit to flying people home. When it comes to the coronavirus, comparisons to the 2003 SARS outbreak are hard to avoid. And there are a lot of similarities. Both viruses appear to have originated in animals, both have the ability to jump from human to human, and both, for what it's worth, are still far less deadly than plain old influenza. But AV Go is hoping that when all is said and done, there will be at least one key difference between the two, how Canada's Chinese community is affected. Ms. Goh is the director of the Chinese and Southeast Asian Legal Clinic in Toronto and the author of a post-SARS report called Yellow Peril Revisited, which looked at the racist undercurrent of the response to that outbreak. We reached her in Toronto. Ms. Goh, as a public health issue, coronavirus is still a long way from being the SARS outbreak, but how does what you're seeing and hearing right now, how does it compare to what Chinese Canadians faced in Toronto in 2003. Yeah, I mean, this is still an early day of the coronavirus, and already we are hearing reports about, for instance, one of the petitions by a number of uh, parents groups in York Region 
uh, calling on the York Region School Board to basically quarantine any students who just came from China. Um, we're hearing like on WhatsApp, social media, uh, telling people not to go to TNTs, which is a very large Chinese supermarket. So this is already happening, and we don't even have an outbreak yet. Like you know, so like we have two cases confirmed, and yet we're already seeing this. I wonder if you see any any evidence that authorities are getting on top of this racism earlier. The, you mentioned the, the school board in North Toronto, a region where there are a lot of Chinese-Canadians who live there. You mentioned 8,000 people so far, last count, signed this petition that the school board should be uh, treating kids uh, who may have been in China, trying to have them quarantined. School board has already said that, hey, this is racism, this is xenophobia. So are they getting on top of it earlier? I think uh, in the case of the York Region School Board, they are doing the right thing by pointing out the racism uh, behind that petition. However, other than the York Region School Board, I don't see any other officials coming out, first of all, to calm the panic. And certainly I don't think anyone other than the community groups themselves naming the issue of racial profiling right now. So in that sense, I think that we might be repeating the same mistake that we made during the SARS, and that is not to address the issue of racism within that crisis. I want to play a clip from that that, that school board, the, the chair, who is Juanita Nathan, who spoke with uh, CBC Radio Morning Show, Pia Chattopadhyay. So here's Ms. Nathan. What we're trying really to get at is is not giving rise to any inadvertent um, racism or in any of those things that we could single out a community at this time. And so are you allowing educators or encouraging them to have those conversations with their students about, you know, the xenophobia, the, the racism that could or in some cases we're already seeing along with this coronavirus? We are when needed, but right now what we're doing is like wearing a mask really singles out some kids in the, in the classroom when they don't need to, and that's what we are addressing at the moment, just having those conversations to give knowledge to the parents why they don't need to at this moment. All right, that is Juanita Nathan, and one of the suggestions is that students not wear masks to school in order to avoid becoming targets of racism. What do you make of that? Well, I don't think wearing a mask or not wearing a mask really addresses the issue of racism. I think if you're a Chinese kid now uh, in the school, um, you will be afraid of being singled out because you're Chinese, not because you wear a mask. But I do uh, take the point that she made about the issue, the need to address racism uh, head on. Uh, we should be focusing on why people are um, sort of making these assumptions about uh, Chinese Canadians who have nothing to do with the virus in China and talking about the racism that uh, has long existed in Canada. And this crisis is just allowing um, those who share those views to make their view public through the social media, or through a petition or through some other ways. We saw that in 2003, some political figures, public figures, tried to counter this. Uh, Jean Chrétien went out to said, hey, let's go out to eat in the Chinese restaurant. Yeah. Let's, let's not be afraid. Let's not play into this racism. What, so what, what do you want to see public figures be doing now to try and stem this racism? Yeah, and I think what uh, Mr. Cretchen did was the right thing because a lot of uh, at that time a lot of the Chinese businesses were affected, uh, and certainly I would 
love to see uh, the mayor of Toronto or the premier or even the prime minister uh, making public statements, supporting the community, and calling out people who make racist uh, comments and assumptions about Chinese Canadians. We saw the federal health minister, Patty Haidu, uh, say that the media has a role to play in, in trying to stem any kind of xenophobia or racism. What do you think? What, are we doing our job? Are we doing what we should in order to avoid that? I believe the media are doing a much better work than they did uh, last time during the SARS crisis. But, you know, media, just like anybody else, need to be reminded uh, that uh, there is racism in Canada. Uh, But I also think the government needs to play a role as well. The SARS inquiry, uh, commission inquiry final report did not address the issue of racism, did not make any recommendations on how to address that issue, which is why I think in part that today our healthcare system is much better prepared to deal with an outbreak like this. But our society as a whole and our government institution as a whole is still not ready to deal with the racism outbreak. And could it even be worse, given the fact that in 2003, we didn't have the social media we have now, and a lot of these racist messages, a lot of this kind of xenophobia is channeled through those Facebook posts of, of, of what was it, one of a video of a woman eating a bat with chopsticks yeah. and things like that. So yeah. no matter what anybody does, how do you counter the kind of racism that's being channeled through those social media? Right. I think what we can do is to continue to send out a message that is based on science, that helps and reminds people how to protect themselves, uh, but also at the same time remind people that Canada is a multicultural society. Chinese Canadians have been and continue to be an important part of Canadian society and just keep sending that positive message out there. We will leave it there. Ms. Go, I appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. A.V. Go is the director of the Chinese and Southeast Asian Legal Clinic in Toronto. That's where we reached her today. For nearly 15 years, Joyce Pottinger has run the only taxi company in Smithers, British Columbia. But at the end of this week, she is shutting BV Taxi Service down. Ms. Pottinger says taxis are an essential service, but running her business has become too much for her to handle. And the kinds of calls she receives make it hard to get other drivers behind the wheel. We reached Joyce Pottinger in her cab in Smithers, British Columbia, earlier today. And a warning, there are some graphic descriptions of violence in this interview. Joyce, we have reached you, I think, in your taxi right now. How busy have you been today? I've been here straight back since 5 o'clock this morning, just calls coming in rate steady for the airport, people going to work, kids going to school, and I'm on by myself. So it's been an interesting morning. How many more hours do you think you'll put in? Today i got to work until 2, and tomorrow I'm doing a 12-hour shift, Thursday 12 hours, and Friday 12 hours, and then we shut her down. You don't have anybody else that you can hand this over to for during the day? So it's just me and Ian. We, I've got two drivers, me and Ian. Uh, why is it so difficult for you to get people to come and drive taxi for you? Uh, the question of the day. Every one of my drivers over the last 13 and a half years is very few that stay with the job. It's not an easy job to do. 
long hours and you're dealing with customers of all different kinds. Most of them are good, but some are really not nice. So you've got to have that special personality to be able to deal with everybody with no judgment, with safety in mind and a good conversation and... Yeah, most of the customers are good, like I say, but there's that handful that's a little testy. Well, I understand that you're not just a taxi company, you're almost like a social service for people in difficult situations. What have you encountered? Oh, we've encountered everything from suicidal teenagers to pregnant ladies with the water breaking to um, people that are so intoxicated, they just get in the cab, fall down, and we usually end up taking them once to the police station to have them removed from the cab. I always say to my drivers, be aware of the pukers, poopers, and the domestic disputes, because my one driver, actually, he described it really good. He says, every call is like a box of chocolates. You don't know which one you're going to pull out of that box. What kinds of calls have you had from women who are in some kind of urgency? Everybody knows me. So they'll say, Joyce, come and get me um, help. You know, they're crying, screaming on the phone. And I'm asking them to please phone 911 because we're not equipped to deal with this. And, you know, and they, I lose the connection. I don't even know where they're at. You sit in your cab thinking, okay, what kind of situation was that poor woman really in? And I've had them get in my cab, a man and a woman, and he ends up just punching and punching her. And I stopped the van, and I got him out and raced off with her, and he was trying to break the windows as I was leaving. And she's really bleeding. He's broken her nose. And you put a few situations around people that don't know how to deal with them kind of situations mentally, and they just refuse to do the job. If they're calling and saying, asking for Joyce, asking for you, it's because they know you will help them. Is that right? They know that I'm going to be the one that's in the cab. I'm in every day, seven days a week. And uh, quite often will just call me by name and could you pick me up at home and I know exactly where they live because you do this long enough, you pretty soon you know your regulars, you know the people. But a lot of these are calls that should go to the police or to show social workers or to emergency medical workers. Have you talked to them about the fact that you're how much of, of their work you're doing? Um, no, I had a paramedic that actually worked for me. She drove ambulance here in Smithers, too, and she realized that on some of her calls, it doesn't happen all the time, but she wanted rubber gloves put in all my vans because as a paramedic and somebody who was in distress, she had to treat them. But yeah, it's a whole new box of chocolates with every phone call. And you've been taking chocolates from these boxes for 15 years now. What kind of toll has that taken on you? Oh, I'm good. I'm getting a little bit older. I don't have the get up and go I used to have. I'm 59 years old, and I've still got a few good years to have a Christmas finally and to be able to see my grandkids and go camping, go picking berries, go for a ride in my canoe. That's that's what I'm looking forward to. But you're the only company in town in Smithers. 
Yeah, we're the only company between Terrace, British Columbia, and Prince George, which is about a seven, eight hundred kilometer stretch. And it sounds like there's a huge demand for what you do. So what are people going to do come Friday? Well, they'll be depending on the services that Smithers provides. And the hospital, well, there's the ambulance. They can phone the ambulance if it's an emergency. And I'm hoping doesn't stay too long without a cab service in Smithers. I mean, I'm being approached by a few people now that are willing to take it over. And I've been approached in the last five years and... After they find out what it entails, um, they usually say no. When was the last time you had a day off? I don't know. (laughs) A few of my daughters got married over the last 13 years. I usually take my birthday off, at least a half a day off. What about Christmas? We get twice as busy, so I'm working twice as hard. My phone is ringing. Okay. I, 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 you know what? I wish you well in, with your canoe and your berry picking. You've earned it. And thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Bye. Have a good day. Bye, Joyce. <laughs> Bye-bye. Joyce Pottinger is the owner of BV Taxi Service in Smithers, B.C., which is where we reached her. He could have worn a trench coat, but maybe that's too conspicuous. So let's say cargo pants or a jacket with pockets. Look, he was at a Sum 41 concert. He could have bought a hoodie with pockets from the merchandise stand. I'm not advocating theft. I'm just saying if you're going to be a pickpocket, you yourself should probably pick an outfit with pockets. Maybe the thief didn't know that police in Amsterdam were going to be out in force at the Sum 41 concert last week. Maybe he didn't know those police had been tipped off by their colleagues in Belgium that a roving gang of thieves had stolen 50 mobile phones at a previous Sum 41 concert in Antwerp. So maybe he was not aware that there would be extra security. But there's such a thing as common sense, which says if you're going to be stealing dozens of cell phones, you don't wear cycling shorts. But this pickpocket did. And despite the bulges in his shorts when those Dutch police stopped him, He was not glad to see them. For good reason. He had stolen 30 mobile phones from people in the crowd and stuffed them all into his skin-tight shorts. Just imagine how the police responded when he attempted to stroll nonchalantly past them with dozens of phones clacking around in his tiny pants. They wouldn't even have had to frisk him. They could just count them on sight through the fabric. So, obviously, they arrested him. Pretty clear-cut case of letting the punishment fit the cram. In parts of East Africa, the ground comes alive as you walk across it and flies away. Swarms of bright yellow desert locusts are destroying thousands of acres of crops. It's the worst infestation Ethiopia and Somalia have seen in 25 years, and for Kenya, the worst in 70 years. And this unimaginably bad situation could get unimaginably worse. The United Nations says locust numbers could multiply 500 times by June, which is why the UN says action has to be taken now and fast to prevent further damage to food security and to farmers' livelihoods. 
Keith Cressman is the Senior Locust Forecasting Officer with the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. We reached him in Nairobi. Mr. Cressman, you are in Nairobi on this emergency locust mission. Can you describe what you have been seeing? Well, we've just come back from the field from uh, central areas of Kenya, north of Mount Kenya. Um, these are, are quite wide plains, um, very few people, um, a couple of small villages, quite remote. Um, however, uh, locust swarms are in this area. We, we saw one um, swarm early in the morning. It was yellow-colored, which means that it's a mature uh, swarm ready to, to copulate, reproduce, and, and lay eggs. And as the temperatures warmed up, uh, within an hour or two, uh, that swarm began to uh, take to the air and, and move as a kind of a single cloud of um, insects um, away from, from the area where we were. What is that uh, like? What is, what is the experience of watching that? It's impressive. It makes you uh, really um, appreciate nature. I'm an entomologist by profession, but just from kind of a a very um, human standpoint, it really makes you realize the power and and the forces of nature. And what is the effect of this swarm? Swarms contain... um, hundreds of, of millions of, of insects. Um, and each insect weighs about two and a half grams. And so they eat their own weight of, of food in a single day. So in, in about a square kilometer uh, size swarm, that swarm could potentially eat the same amount of food in one day as about 35,000 people. So the potential um, for for these swarms to have a significant um, and devastating impact on food security, on crop production, on on pastures, and on people's livelihoods should not be underestimated. So what what is causing this? Because all of every country is talking about the swarms that they have not seen in decades or a generation. What's causing it? Well, it's a combination of very unusual um, weather events that have occurred consistently uh, for about the past year and a half. It started with um, a couple of cyclones that developed in the Indian Ocean at the beginning of the summer of 2018, and then again at the end of the summer. Both of these cyclones dropped very heavy rain um, in desert areas of, of the Arabian Peninsula um, in very remote areas um, called the Empty Quarter, where, where um, the locust infestations um, could not be found, they could not be treated, so the, the locusts were basically on, on a nine-month holiday, and they, they kept increasing um, and increasing. There was three generations of breeding, and, and remember that with each generation, the locusts increased 20 times. So as a result of, of these cyclones, it gave fabulous breeding conditions in a, in a very inaccessible place, once those conditions dried out, the swarms that were there, they started to move out of the area into other countries and, and invading other regions. So most of it is based on the, these, these weather patterns, these unusual weather patterns. There, there's others who are saying that it's another contributing factor is geopolitics and that these swarms, uh, some of them came from Iran, which is under sanctions, so didn't have the right pesticides. It uh, was crossing the border between Pakistan and India, who, which are under a lot of tensions because of Kashmir. Uh, then it goes through war-torn Yemen, where no one's taking action because it's a war. And, uh, and, and so it goes. 
clues in each region. There is some reason why there is no one there to, to, to deal with this before it becomes the crisis, right? What you said is entirely correct. They can get into extremely poor countries that really don't have a strong infrastructure or, or ability or capacity to respond. Um, the locusts seem to have this in, in inherent nature. And this year is very interesting because they, they were in areas, uh, as you say, in Iran that is suffering from sanctions and that, um, in fact, had very heavy floods at the early, about a year ago. So that contributed to the increase. They're along both sides of the India-Pakistan border in a year in which tensions were, were incredibly high. But despite this, um, uh, for example, taking India and Pakistan as an example, um, both countries managed every, every month to meet on the border to discuss about the situation and, and what they're doing about it face-to-face. So it shows you um, the importance that the uh, affected countries um, attribute to locusts. It, it is really a serious pest problem in their countries. These cyclones that created the conditions for the locusts, this, they followed years of a very prolonged drought in the region. It was very difficult to produce enough food to feed people. Now what's going to happen with this? Well, of course, you know, the, the Horn of Africa is extremely vulnerable. It, it, it has, as you mentioned, gone through a number of very dry years, and then they, they get some very wet years that, that has floods and, and these things. So the livelihoods and, and kind of the vulnerabilities of the inhabitants of this part of Africa is already extremely fragile. Um, at the moment, there's nearly 12 million people that are severely food insecure in the three countries that are affected by locusts now. So this is really the last thing that they need. And just finally, we haven't used the, the phrase climate change or climate crisis, but can there be any doubt that at the root of this is the climate crisis? It's it's very difficult to, to say that, you know, let's say with, with certainty because the, 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 you know, the time frame that we're looking at is extremely short. We're we're only kind of looking at climatic events in the last um, maybe three or four years where we see this this um, trend of increased um, cyclone activity. Um, whether that's, you know, attributed to, to climate change or, or something else, it can be difficult to say with certainty. But what can be said, certainly, is if this trend does continue in the future, we are likely to see um, more outbreaks of this nature in the Horn of Africa. We will leave it there for now, Mr. Cressman. I appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Keith Cressman is the Senior Locust Forecasting Officer with the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. We reached him in Nairobi. And you can find more on that story, including photos of those oddly beautiful locusts, on the As It Happens website, cbc.ca slash AIH. City Councillor Marcus Wong lives in the upscale British Properties neighborhood of West Vancouver. Nowadays, it's pretty diverse. But not that long ago, Councillor Wong would have been prohibited from living there unless he was a servant of the occupier of the premises. In fact, there were still land title documents in that neighborhood with what are called covenants, saying people of color who aren't servants cannot, quote, reside or be allowed to remain on the premises, unquote. Those rules may be vestigial, but Councillor Wong wanted them gone. So he introduced a motion to remove any remaining covenants in the district that discriminate based on race, gender, ancestry, or religion. And last night, that motion passed unanimously.
Last week, Marcus Wong talked to CBC Vancouver's On the Coast about his efforts, and he started by reading from some of those racist land titles. So there's two parts. So the first part says that the grantee shall not sign a sign or transfer the said lands to anybody uh, of a- African or Asiatic race or descent. And as well, um, no person of either African or Asiatic race or descent uh, shall reside uh, on, the, on the premises except uh, as servants. What did you think when you saw those those phrases? Well, I grew up in the British properties, and I still live there. And when I was growing up, I always sort of knew in the in the back of my mind that this was a community that in its history had this unfortunate part and sort of always dangled above my head. And there's always urban myths about, you know, why somebody of my skin color could live there. And so now that as a city councillor in West Vancouver, I thought it was really important uh, to to do something about it. You know, a lot of these clauses have been cancelled by homeowners uh, through the Land Title Survey Authority, but there are still some out there who've, that have survived. And so, you know, given that it's the Asian Lunar New Year coming up and it's a time for renewal, a time for turning a new leaf, I thought it was very important to, to do that at this time. Okay, well, how about uh, conversations that you've had with your community, with your parents, with your family about all of this? I mean, how did they feel when they found out that these these documents still exist? Well, it's always very awkward, especially for, I think, new Canadians that I speak to who come to Canada looking and hoping for a better life, where it's somewhere safe that they can raise their children and grandchildren and, and really put down roots. And to buy a home, to have a covenant like that, uh, that says, Ashley, you know, back in the day, you weren't welcome. Just it's, it puts a very bad taste in my mouth. That was West Vancouver Councillor Marcus Wong speaking with Gloria Makarenko, host of On the Coast. Yesterday, the municipality of West Vancouver passed a motion to void land covenants that discriminated against people of colour in the district's British Properties neighbourhood. The Trudeau government has ordered both the Parole Board of Canada and Correctional Services to investigate the death of Marilène Lévesque. The 22-year-old sex worker was found murdered in a Quebec City hotel room last week. A man named Eustachio Galazzi has been charged with her murder. Mr. Galazzi was out on day parole, allowed out of prison after serving time for the murder of his wife. At a September hearing about the conditions of Mr. Galazzi's release, the board heard his parole officer describe a strategy that allowed Mr. Galazzi to be with women, but only to address his, quote, sexual needs. The board found that strategy to be troubling, but continued to allow Mr. Galazzi's parole. Jean-Claude Boyer is a former member of the parole board. We reached him in Montreal. Mr. Boyer, have you ever heard of someone on parole with a history of violence towards women being told by a parole officer that he could meet with women but only to satisfy his sexual needs? No, and uh, I've been asking a lot of uh, board members if that ever happened in their memories. And they all said, no, it's impossible. We've never seen that before. It seems to be uh, in the conditional release report, it, it says that this is for risk management. What, what, what strategy of risk management could this be for? It couldn't be a risk management when you authorize a criminal who has a problem with women to go meet with the most vulnerable woman 
in the society who are prostitutes. It's not a risk management. It increases his risk. So I don't really understand what the correctional services did, and I don't understand what the the board members who saw him in uh, September who notified that it was a important risk for him to do that, uh, not to uh, apply any rules. Right. Not to apply any rules. Now, what you've reviewed the case? What what were the 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 limitations on Mr. Galize's ability to have contact with women? If I was on the board, I would immediately suspend his uh, his freedom because he's committing a criminal infraction, and you cannot let a person commit a criminal infraction, even if the correctional services did say, oh, we planned this. No, it's not acceptable. He's breaking the law because he is paying for the services of a sex worker. Yes, and now the law is clear that if a person solicitates sexual services from a person for money, then he's committing a criminal infraction. You cannot authorize that as a board member and as a correctional services officer. So who authorized that? How did that come about? Correctional services has a team who supervise. They have one agent and they have a team who supervise every case. And I don't understand how come a team came to that conclusion that having sexual relations for a man who has problem with women would be correct while they should know that it's a criminal crime when they do it first. And then it's a problem when you, uh, when you realize that the board members who should be the one saying, hey, stop right there. It's not normal what's going on here. And they didn't do it. The understanding was is that he was uh, a man who was not ready for a serious relationship with a woman, that uh, though he knew what his needs were, uh, he had problems, he was impulsive, he, was, uh, he had low tolerance, he was aggressive, but they decided that the best way to manage him was to allow him to meet his sexual needs. What, what, what responsibility did those parole workers have to, to the woman, to, to any sex workers that he encountered or he used? Well, uh, if a man has a problem with one specific problem, which in this case was relationship with woman, then everything must be made to avoid it. And that was not the case. They they said that uh, a man who's uh, very impulsive, who had a problem with woman, who wanted a, a lot of control on woman, could have relationship with woman, which is not understandable. Does it suggest a, a double standard that a sex worker is 
is less entitled to protection than women in the general population? We don't see too many of those cases. But when you have a man who has a problem dealing with women, you must be very careful. And in this case, they were not very careful. Mr. Boyer, thank you for speaking with us. Oh, thank you, Miss. Bye-bye. Have a good evening. Jean-Claude Boyer is a former parole board member. We've reached him in Montreal. Eustachio Galezi has been charged with murdering Marilyn Levesque while he was on parole. Amid the piles of snow, they're hard to miss. Blue ribbons placed in memory of three cherished lives lost, with the hope that they will spare others. The ribbons are popping up everywhere in Conception Bay, South Newfoundland. At least, everywhere there's a buried fire hydrant. They're the result of a community effort that began on Facebook, one that's now expanded beyond the town's borders. It's called the Carter Anthony Fire Hydrant Recovery Operation, launched in memory of five-year-old Carter Anthony. On January 16th, the night before eastern Newfoundland was struck by a historic blizzard, Carter and his grandparents, Pauline Anthony Kane and James Kane, died in a house fire. Within two days of that tragedy, the group had amassed more than a thousand members. Dozens of hydrants were cleared and dozens of ribbons tied around pole markers. Yesterday, the CBC's Janelle Kelly met with Carter's mother, Lindsay, who talked about discovering that a Facebook campaign had been created in her son's memory. When I opened it, I was I was kind of taken back. I was like, who is this person making a group for my child? What is what is this? And then when I opened the group and I saw what it was, I I collapsed in a heap on the kitchen floor, just heavily sobbing because my heart was so full, so overwhelming. What a beautiful way to honor such a beautiful boy. And he would have loved it. He would have loved it every second of that. When people clear out their fire hydrants in honor of Carter, they are putting uh, blue ribbons on them. Have you seen many blue ribbons around? There's a fire hydrant right in front of my house, and someone has a blue ribbon tied on it. When I got home from his funeral yesterday, it was there. It made me smile to see that he touched so many people in his short, short life. And there's people doing multiple hydrants, not just one. There's people, you know going up and down their whole street and making sure everything in their neighborhood is done. Did the firefighters tell you the fire hydrants, they weren't able to get to them that night? I'm not sure of what happened, but I know that there was a struggle with the fire hydrant. I'm not sure of the exact details. Since this has all happened, it seems like there's been a huge community outpouring of support. Oh my gosh, yes. Can you tell me about your mom's car I saw on Twitter? Oh my goodness, I had tweeted out... Um, the day before uh, the, the first day of my son's wake, so that would have been Thursday, I tweeted out at 11.45 a.m. that my mom's car was still encapsulated in snow and ice and she needed help digging it out so that she could come and see Carter the next day at the funeral home. And within one hour of me sending that tweet, her car was dug out, her vents were cleared, and her hydrant was cleared just complete strangers all showed up at her house and she 
the, the support is just, it's so overwhelming. I can't, I'm so proud that he touched so many people like that. My nine-year-old, I was Jude, I was telling him about the group and he said, well, mommy, that's good because Carter might save a life. Is there anything you want to say about Carter? Anything else you'd like to add or about uh, his grandparents, anything at all? Pauline and Jim took me in as one of their own from the day they met me. They were, they were my parents, too. They were absolutely the best grandparents that you could have asked for. The bond that they had with their grandchildren. You never see anything like that ever again. That was Lindsay Anthony of Conception Bay South speaking with the CBC's Janelle Kelly yesterday. The Carter Anthony Fire Hydrant Recovery Operation was launched in memory of her five-year-old son, who died in a house fire along with his grandparents earlier this month. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and follow the links to our online archive. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Houghton. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.